0: Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas,
1: with a simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Hi, everyone. Uh, Our scripture reading today comes from Luke 15. Uh, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. The son said to him, "But, fa- or Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The word of the Lord. Good
0: morning, Vine family. Great to be with you all. My name is Mark. I'm the pastor here, and uh, thanks, Kelsey, for the finance report. We don't talk much about money as a church because a lot of people, they think that's what churches primarily talk about, so that only happens a couple times a year, and you were here when that happened. Good for you. Very good for you. So, friends, we are in a series called Wish I Would Have Known. The idea of this sermon series actually came when I visited some friends in Wichita Falls. Now, don't imagine this or picture this in your head, but we were in a hot tub talking, don't picture it, okay? Don't, when it, if you do need to picture it, it looked a lot like that, all right? So we were, uh, we were in a hot tub talking, and then my friend, Ryan and Juliana, shout out to them, they asked the question, Mark, what do you wish you could teach your 20-year-old self? That's a great question. What do you wish that you knew when you were 20 years old? Now, if we could set aside the butterfly effect just for a little bit of like what would happen if we would have not made the mistakes we would have made, you know, I think many of us, what what we think of when we hear that question is most of us live with some regrets of decisions that we've made. Like our fingerprints were on some really bad ideas and decisions and we, all of us want to live with fewer regrets, also, many of us, we probably wish we would have not have learned some things along the way, maybe some ideas or principles that we internalized that really shaped and formed us in a bad in bad way. And many of us, we probably have a long journey of unwinding those things. I actually think someone should rewi- uh, rewrite Seuss's famous book and make it, oh, the things you'll need to unlearn to be a halfway decent person. <laughs> With that question in that hot tub inspired this series. This is especially meaningful as uh, we have some beloved college students who are back here in West Campus, uh, visiting us back here from the summer. Now, I liked it last week when Rochelle, she kind of set the tone by showing a picture of what she looked like at that age, and so uh, here's a picture of me when I went off to college. Guys, (laughs) Mark Charbonneau loved college. College. I don't know why I needed to wear a promise ring. It was fine. I was in lockdown. It was, uh, but that was me in college. I loved. I went to Texas A and M University. Okay, there are some people here, and I said yes to every single adventure. I was way overextended. I joined so many like organizations on campus. I helped start Howdy to promote the tradition of saying "howdy" on campus, I was way 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 over involved and I had the reputation of being a bit crazy. Not in the you know keg party Frank the Tank kind of crazy, but like the t- the type of person where I would be very susceptible for late night adventures, dares and suggestions. Like I was up for a good time. Uh, One of our favorite questions in college was when someone come up with a really, really, really dumb idea, we'd say, why not? Why, Why wouldn't we do that? So, like, why wouldn't we hop a train or go cow tipping? Why not get a map of Texas and throw a dart and wherever it landed, we're driving there right now. Like, why wouldn't you do that? Or why not get a perm? You know, like, why not, right? Now, I don't know if you know this, but there's a part of the brain, especially in men, that doesn't really develop and turn, you turn like 23, that weighs consequences. I don't know if you know this, like, but very much there's something that happens in the brain where you're like, oh, maybe risk-reward is like a factor in making this decision, but that didn't happen until I was well out of college. One thing I did have that was a comfort for me while I was in college was I actually had an older brother who was three years older than me, and he was there at A&M as well. He had a very different life. While I was in Hart Hall, a non-air-conditioned dorm, um, blowing uh, hot air in a circle, like trying to live my best life, my brother was in the Corps of Cadets, like dressing like military, did that for four years, a weird form of a fraternity. And so that's what he did in college. He was very dutiful, responsible, his life was structured, and I rarely went to class. We were very, very different. And it's interesting for me, the power of birth orders. Like someone asked me recently, like what is it like raising sons versus raising daughters? And I said, actually the bigger difference for me is raising a firstborn and then raising a middle child and raising a zany young kid. Like our daughters are not as different to our son as my oldest is to my youngest. Like, they are worlds apart. They're just like different species of people. And it's a weird thing how birth order works. It's incredibly powerful. So let me have some help here. What are some generalizations about firstborns? Responsible? Responsible? Cautious? Independent? Good looking? Good looking? <laughs> Interesting. Well, from over here, my side of the... The wedding, right? This is my wife's side packed. Here's the sparse side of my wedding. What about you? What's uh, some uh, stereotypes of firstborns? Cautious. Cautious. Caretaker. Uh-huh. What's that? Type A. Type A. Yep. What about the, the younger child? High maintenance. High maintenance. Oh my gosh. What? Party. Party. Wild. Wild. Dreamer. Fun. Dreamer. Perfect. Okay, so we have good-looking versus perfect. Yeah, great. Spoiled. Yeah, I I love this with firstborns. Like the parents are very structured with them, very restrictive, and then the younger child like gets to do whatever they want to because the parents are just tired and and don't care anymore, right? It's amazing how those stereotypes. We could look at it and go, oh, that's just a Western American 2020 thing. But what we find here is, I wonder if those. Uh, stereotypes of birth order are deeply just a part of being human. Because when you look at the parable of the prodigal son, which we just heard, we see these two archetypes beautifully displayed. I think that's in part why this story is as popular and as well-known, is that we have the two archetypes of a firstborn, dutiful, doing the right thing, responsible, controlled, and then we have the younger brother, it's interesting if we were to rewind the script a little bit in our scripture. Who is Jesus telling the story to? Well, he's telling the story to Pharisees, who are like uber religious men who were absolutely obsessed with being right. And he's telling the story to sinners and tax collectors, people who were demoted in that society of being amoral being people who aren't bound by rules, who exist outside uh, what was expected. And we find Jesus talking to those two people, those two archetypes, and he says, can I tell you what my kingdom is like? And he goes in to tell the story. First, there's the younger child, the prodigal son, which we call him. We find him saying to his father, give me my part of the estate. Now, this is the equivalent of saying, this man saying to his father, I don't want to wait for you to be dead. I want your things now. Give me what's coming to me now. I'd rather have your things than have you. Well, that's, a, that's a harsh thing to ask. And especially in that society, in an agrarian society, where, where is his wealth? Well, it's in his land. So he would have to sell a portion of his land to give his son his estate. That would be a public shaming thing for him to do. And I'm not sure if anyone grew up in a, in a farming family here, but there is in agrarian societies a deep connection between people and land. Like it's a part of your identity. It's a part of who you are in this world. And so the son is not he's not just merely saying, I want your money. He's saying, I want out of this family. I want I want out of our name. I want to forge a new way ahead on my own. I want your things. And this would have been hard. And it's not like he did this because he had a great business model and he wanted to forge a new way and create a new name and make his own path. He just wanted to live wildly. He wanted to live with excess. He was willing to shut out his family because He wanted to squander his, well, this is the wording of Scripture, squander his wealth in wild living. Imagine a young man, 20 years old, showing up in Vegas with pockets full of cash. Or maybe more locally, imagine a 20-year-old who buys a place on Rainy Street and can be found on Dirty Six buying rounds for everyone else. That is who this person is. And sadly, this man's experience was about to show the frailty of a life when they pursue cheap pleasure. He spent everything he had. He took the inheritance he had, and he wasted it all. And then a famine came, and the party was over. Reality settled in, and his his wealth gave way to poverty. The season of lavish living gave way to famine. The son found him desperate. He was so desperate that he was there in this foreign land, found a farmer, and said, I'll take care of anything. He said, how about you? As a Jew, how about you take care of my pigs? You know, something that was deemed in their culture unclean. How about you take care of them? And this man was so empty, so desperate, that he actually would watch the pigs eat and go, if only I could eat that. Like, that's the lowest of the low for someone of that culture in that time. But there was a unique grace that happened in the low point, and that is the unique grace of what Scripture says. When he came to his senses... Oftentimes, when people hit rock bottom, there's a unique clarity. And this man had that kind of clarity. When he came to his senses, these moments wake us up. They have a tendency, uh, we have a tendency to find ourselves in distant places, unsure of how we got there. But when we come to our senses, we remember there is a different life. Ernest Hemingway, he wrote a short story called The Capital of the World, and it begins with this line. Madrid is full of boys named Paco. A father and a son who became estranged. The son betrayed his father, the story goes. The son betrayed his father, and out of shame, he ran away. His father, moved by compassion, begins to search for him and hears that he's in Madrid. He begins to look for him and to find him. Spends months doing so with no avail. Finally, in the last desperate effort to find him. The father puts an ad in a a newspaper there in Madrid, and all the ad says is this, Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. Full page ad. The police had to be called in that Saturday when they found 800 young men named Paco who had showed up wondering if, in fact, it was their father who put that ad out. All these young men, hungry for forgiveness for a new start and to be back in relationship with their father. Madrid is full of boys named Paco. But I think the reality is this world is full of people hoping for forgiveness. Maybe, just maybe, have a little bit of hope that there's a loving father who sees his children as his children and loves them and forgives them and welcomes them home. But this returning as a son for this prodigal son was beyond his reach. That's not what his plan was. He came to his senses. He remembered his father's home and how he treated his servants. So he said, I am better off to become a servant in my father's house than I would be remaining here in this foreign land. And so he returns with the plan to be made a servant. In verse 18, the story goes, this man said, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. This man did not expect a return as a son, but a servant would be enough. That's like even more than he is able to ask, but maybe maybe the father would allow him to be in that role. Now, this man had his script down. He, maybe 20 years old, began making that long trek home. And I just imagine what was going on in his mind and in his soul as he began making this journey back home. How he knew that he would be the laughingstock of the community. How he would be the object of disdain. Potentially, he'd be rejected by his father with, you know, all the different I told you so's that he had coming his way. Maybe even parents would pull their kids aside as he was walking back home. And parents would tell their kids, this is what happens when you turn against your family. Do not be like him. All of this was interrupted by, guys, this is my favorite verse in all of the Bible. This next verse, if I could talk to my 20-year-old self, this is when I would look up at my 20-year-old self and go, listen up, this is about to be good. Because this actually tells me the whole story. It actually tells me what the gospel, the good news of Jesus really is about. And this is the verse. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, Drew his arms around him and kissed him. Why would Jesus include that little phrase, but while he was a long way off? Why would Luke, who remembered Jesus telling this story and wrote it out, why would he remember that phrase and include it well it 's because perhaps this father had the tendency to look down the road. I personally when I, if I go out to dinner with you i 'm at a restaurant with a TV, I will always choose. The side of the booth that faces away from TVs, because I'm just a dumb male and I cannot resist the temptation to look at a TV. I could care less what's on there. I'm still going to be looking over your shoulder. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Because I, I just can't not look away. I imagine the father in this story constantly distracted whenever he's outside, looking down the road, wondering maybe today's the day. Maybe my son is going to return home. Maybe this is the moment when our family's back together. And the father was looking for his child, his eyes were down the road, and on that day, in the far distance, the father sees a skeleton of a man marred by a regret and shame and poverty. And this father knows, my boy has come home. And what does Scripture say was going on inside of the Father? What was Scripture saying is happening inside of him? Was it disdain or righteous judgment? Was it this sense of moral superiority? No. The Father saw him and he was filled with what? Compassion. He was filled with compassion for his son. He wasn't frustrated. He didn't have uh, just disdain for his son. He was absolutely filled with compassion and he did what older respectable men didn't do. He hiked up his robe, he showed off his pasty calves and he ran to be with his son. The son, when he gets to his father, started with the script that he had well rehearsed. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father interrupted him Uninterested with hearing his groveling, the father interrupted him and said, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I want us to notice here what are the things that the father provides for the son in this passage? What are the things the father provides? A robe, a ring, sandals, and probably the most overlooked part of this, a feast. A robe, that's a covering to cover up the, 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 the poverty that he had. It's to cover, give him a covering to, of, of the shame and the regret that he had. What about a ring? A ring is a symbol of his father's authority, When someone made an agreement or a covenant, oftentimes they would get wax, use the ring and dip it, and they would press it on there saying that this is underneath the authority of this family or this father. And so he is restored, not just merely as like a part of the family, but he's given his authority and his role back. What about sandals? Sandals would be the dirtiest part of him. It would be the clearest marking of how far he went away and how far he had to come back. And his father wanted to start him anew again. And the feast. I think this is the most overlooked because, for me, this is deeply moving. The fact that he, the father, wanted to throw a celebration. This was not going to be some private family event. This was not going to be a shame that the father would have and he'd keep as a family. He could care less about that. The whole community would know when, if this man sold part of his property, what happened. But the father cared more about his relationship than his reputation. And parents, I just want to just say that over you. like Just care more about your relationship with your kids than your reputation with others. This father could care less. He doesn't want this son just to be renewed in his family. The community is gonna be involved in this. So he throws a celebration and a party because his boy has come home. Jesus here is is talking about how his kingdom works and his kingdom is meant to restore us in our regrets. Restore us and make us whole. Jesus is using this story to talk about the basis of our relationship with God. It's alarming, it's unexpected. Many of us, I think, might, many of us, I might say even most of us, have a mental construct of what, how it works with God, and this story dismantles and upends it. And because many of us, we have this mental construct of God as perpetually disappointed. <laughs> that was kind of my, my picture of God as perpetually perpetually disappointed in the mistakes that I have made. And for many of us, our religion is rehearsing a cycle of trying to be a very good version of me, failing at that version of it, having to go through the cycle of shame and guilt, and then trying to muster up my zeal to be that better version of me, only to have it fail again. And some of us, after doing that enough, we give up, and what sounds good is going to distant lands and just squandering what we've been given. We expect God to be that disappointed parent Woven through that cycle and what the son expects to be given to him, woven through all of that is one of the most profound aspects of a lot of our religious experience, which is shame. Shame has a tendency to be a part of our construct of a life with God. Brene Brown has beautifully, wonderfully taught many of us about shame, me included. She defines shame as this. Shame is uh, the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. So shame, as she defines it, is this intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. I'm curious if the religious constructs that you were taught fuel that kind of shame. I love my background, how I was raised. My parents did an incredible job raising me. Somewhere along the way, not from them, not necessarily from the church, but somewhere along the way, elements of shame started being woven into my understanding of how it works with God. Uh, The experience of believing that we are flawed. I was taught along the way that the heart is wicked, it's deceitful. Yet that's the deepest part of me. Like the deepest part of who I am is my heart. And it's wicked. Now I don't want to say like, I'm, not, I'm taking down John Calvin and I think everyone who's re- has reformed theology is wrong. I'm not necessarily saying that. I'm questioning what's the fruit of that. Self-fulfilling prophecies are, are powerful. If you're told enough that the deepest part of you is wicked, you have a tendency to live it out. And I was taught along the way, I'm flawed. To my core, I'm flawed. And also, unworthy of love and belonging. I remember once saying to someone, I feel worthless before God. And their correction to me was, you're not worthless, you're just unworthy. Like, you're unworthy of God's love. What they're trying to say is, like, we don't earn it. We're unworthy of it. But along the way, that feeling of being unworthy of God's love means, like, the deepest part of who I am as well is not worthy of receiving God's love and grace and mercy. And I wonder if it's something that I can depend upon. I had to go see counseling, a spiritual director, uh, To figure out how to unwind shame from my life with God. Because it was woven all inside of it. I used to think that shame was the way in which God spoke to me, the way in which God wanted to shape me. And the interesting thing is, I know I'm not alone. I know many of you have hold shame as a part of your own life with God, either shame from the regrets of this week or regrets of years past, shame for your secret and private sins, shame for the things that have been made public. You've been taught to be ashamed of your lust, your drive, your anger, how you've cut corners. Some of you have been taught shame around your sexual orientation. Some of you have been taught shame uh, around you, how you've been the truth. Many of us are taught to be ashamed of just being human, And what I've seen in my life as a pastor is uh, this presence of shame in our life with God cuts through denominationalism. I have met Baptists and Catholics who share this common element in their religious life, the role of guilt and shame. That demeanor is never found in this story that Jesus used to describe what his kingdom is like Shame and guilt-giving is never given here in this story. The father was not waiting for the son to grovel a little bit more until he confessed how flawed he was and how unworthy he was to receive renewing grace and love. This parable is describing a different kingdom in reality altogether for about a different savior. Now, to clarify, there is conviction in the spiritual life, but for me, conviction and shame are worlds apart. Shame finds us in our sin and says, see, see who you are? You are a failure. You are broken to the core. That's what shame does. What conviction does, it finds us in our sin, and it says, this isn't who you are. This isn't who you are. You're my child, You're not meant to be here. You're not meant to live like this. This isn't who you are. You were made and saved for so much more than this. Shame welcomes the prodigal son and puts him in the place of his servant to work off everything he squandered. And grace finds us before we're even home and embraces us, restores us so that we might live up to the name that we have not deserved, but we have been joyfully given so, I've been thinking about my, my, my college self. Where are my college students at? Where are you all at? Mason, come on up here for a second. Yeah, you, you raise your hand. It's your fault. You shouldn't have done that. This is Mason. He's fresh, in, he's fresh here uh, in Austin. Uh, fre- uh, freshman year? Yes. Here we go. All right, so, I wish that I could um, look at my my 18-year-old self, and I'd say this. Mark, you're a better-looking Mark than mine was, but (laughs) I'd say, Mark, God will never use shame, ever. God will never use shame to control you, to try to form you. He doesn't know that language. He doesn't speak it. Shame can do a lot of things. You will be tempted to use shame to drive your religious devotion But here's the thing. Shame will never change you from the inside out. It will never transform you. It can't do that. Only one thing can do that, and it's love. And God loves you when you're far away from home, and he loves you when you're trying your best. That's the thing that God wants you to know and to be formed by. I love you, Mark. All right, now get out of your seat. That's what I would say to myself. I would hope from that age on that I would begin the process of having shame removed from my understanding of what a life with God is about. But don't worry, for those who are firstborns, you don't get a free ride in the story, right? There's a whole other section, which I didn't know until I was like well past 20, that this story is about two prodigal sons, both are lost in their own way. But I wouldn't say that to myself at 20, because I wasn't a firstborn it wasn't dutiful, and this is my week, all right? So I'm telling you what I would tell myself. No, but for honestly, for those uh, who also have the struggle of self-righteousness, this story is about two sons who are both lost, two children who are both lost in a very different way. The younger brother was lost in his pursuit of selfish gain, but the older brother was also lost in self-righteousness. And the father has to, if you read the story, the father has to go outside and find both of them. He has to receive both of them. Both of them are also alone and isolated for very different reasons. And they both share a very limited view of the Father. They wanted the Father's things before the Father. But this story is teaching us the lesson for all people, both archetypes, both types of people, and it's this. The greatest role that you will ever play in your life is that you are God's beloved. That's the greatest role that you'll ever play. And firstborns, you need to know that role is more important than being right and good, being devout and religious. And for those who have a tendency to wander, to live with wildness and to spoil your life, you need to know that Your role of God's beloved runs deeper than the sin and the regret and the shame that you might feel. For those who have felt and internalized this feeling of being unworthy or flawed, like we heard defined earlier, God's love of you runs deeper than your unworthiness or your flaw that runs deeper. It claims you more deeply and fully, that you are loved with an unending love. Our failures might try to convince us otherwise. Our achievements might try to convince us otherwise. But they are both shallow compared to the vastness of God's love that claims you again and again and again. Jesus came for those who know that they need mercy and grace, who know that they need a family and a home to be received in. And I just want to finish by saying this. The same eyes that were looking down the road, waiting for their beloved child to come home, the same eyes are looking for you, to restore you, to heal you. So toss away that old bondage of shame that you might bring to this because God has a celebration for you because you are so loved.
1: We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about The Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to The Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.